Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 19th to 25th of July, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. Before getting into this week's news updates, a couple of small administrative points. First, as always, a special shout out to our good friends at Spacewatch.Global and GoTikonauts, two excellent sources for space industry news. Second, uh, our apologies, but we were recently informed that there was a bit of an issue with the sign up for our newsletter and uh, that some people were not able to confirm their subscription in the link. We have fixed that. And so if you are interested in the newsletter, please try again. And we are very happy to uh, to have you there. Getting into this week's news updates, we will discuss the response by China's space sector in the uh, helping out of the catastrophic flooding in Henan province. We will unpack the launch of a Long March 2C with a handful of satellites. But first, Jean is going to bring us some updates on the space-based solar station and uh, the experimental base that is being built for that in the city of Chongqing. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. So, Jean, space-based solar station, that's, uh, that's an interesting one. What's going on in Chongqing? Absolutely. So, China kicked off the construction of its first space-based solar station experimental base in Bishan District of Chongqing. And so, for those who aren't very familiar with Chinese geography, Chongqing is a city in the southwest of China. And actually, it's one of the four provincial-level cities alongside Beijing, Tianjin, and Shanghai, basically meaning that it's not part of a province. It means that the municipality itself is at provincial level. And uh, so what we learned from the Chongqing Daily a couple of basically days, actually this news is a bit older, a couple of weeks ago, that 2.6 billion RMB, basically 400 million um, US dollars will be invested in this industrial base and will cover about 200 acres or 0.8 square kilometers. And this experimental base will aim at demonstrating the feasibility of a number of key technologies for space-based solar stations and notably the wireless space-to-ground transmission of energy through microwaves. Now let's give a quick recap of what actually space-based solar stations are. It's not a new idea. It dates all the way back to the 1970s. And basically this idea stems from the fact that while solar stations on Earth are hampered by a number of factors and notably the presence of clouds, which can block sunlight and make solar panels effectiveness drop. And even when you have no weather issues, well, you can always have, you always have some level of atmospheric absorption. And perhaps more importantly, solar panels are only able to work during daytime. In other words, 12 hours a day uh, on average. Now, if you put this solar station into space, basically, you solve all of these problems because the solar station then benefits from a continuous 24 hours of sunlight and you don't have the attenuation of clouds or atmospheric effects. Now, of course, things are never that easy. You solve these problems, but new ones arise. And probably the biggest one, I think, is that while solar stations are extremely heavy, if you're if you plan to generate sufficient power to be, you know, significant for a district or even a city, um, then you're talking about huge surfaces of solar arrays and you need also powerful microwave transmission systems to transfer the energy from space um, to ground. And just to give a few examples to illustrate that. So China apparently plans to send a megawatt level experimental space based solar station 
um, by 2030. And according to a researcher from CAST in an interview that dates back to 2020, this megawatt level station would uh, basically weigh about 200 tons. And we're talking about 200 tons into geostationary orbit, not low Earth orbit. And this is unimaginably heavy and probably inaccessible for all of the launch vehicles that are operational today. But on a more positive note, China is developing a number of big rockets for its um, lunar program. We have the Long March 5DY. We have the Long March 9, which are two rockets that we discussed at length during a dedicated episodes. And they're able to send uh, 70 tons and 150 tons into LEO um, based on the latest iteration that was presented by um, Long Lehao, who's the chief engineer of uh, the Long March rockets at CALT, which is the Chinese Academy of Launch Technology. And speaking of Long Lehao, the fun fact is Long Lehao actually suggested in a speech at Hong Kong University in June 2021, so a couple of weeks ago, that space-based solar stations could actually be one of the use cases uh, for these lunar rockets. And so he showed nobly a table uh, with estimations of solar station masses and corresponding number of launches. So let's just unpack that for a minute. And so on this table, we'd see that a megawatt level station with a lifespan of 15 years would weigh 660 tons and would require no less than 17 long launch nine launches to be assembled. And this plan would be done by 2030. And there would be another space-based solar station that's at gigawatt level with a lifespan of 30 years at 10,000 tons. And this would require wait for it, 143 launches of Long March 9 to be assembled. And this um, with the time horizon of 2050. So this definitely sounds like science fiction in 2021. Um, but, you know, this gigawatt level station is is planned for 2050. So that's in 30 years. And, you know, maybe uh, by that time, rocket reusability technology will have made progress to enable launch prices to go down sufficiently to make such a big project, sending so much mass into geostationary orbit will make this economically viable. Who knows? And also, this technology could be interesting for space exploration also, not just for the Earth, because you could imagine space-based solar stations generating power for a lunar base or a Mars base, especially in those areas where, um, well, you don't have easy access to maybe hydroelectricity or fossil fuels to generate power in those areas. Now, let me wrap up with some feasibility conditions. So we mentioned the massive payload weight that was a big issue. There are also other problems that are linked to um, space-based solar stations, such as the efficiency of the transmission systems. And you also have a very big problem as well, the size of the receiving stations on the ground, which have to be massive due to the wave nature of um, microwaves during the wireless transmission and to diffraction. And, um, and so there are quite a few issues if you're interested in this projects or if you're just interested in Chinese funky space projects we actually have an entire dedicated episode to these topics called the most funky space projects in China I'll put a link up here in the video um, so do check that out if you're if you're interested in that um, and apart from that Blaine any any thoughts on this crazy space-based project it is indeed a pretty crazy and fascinating project this idea of a solar uh, space-based solar station um, so just a little bit more insight on the timeline that china has in mind and also the timeline that we've seen up to this point um, so china's had space solar power systems on its roadmap since about 20 uh, 2008 when the technology was added to a national level of preliminary research plan the decision to have this first industrial base located in Chongqing was made in 2018, and the construction has been underway since about last month. And uh, some of the sort of usual suspects are involved, notably Chongqing University, uh, Xidian University, and CAST's Xi'an Academy, with the project under the leadership of Chinese academician Yang Shizhong. 
Um, according to a recent report from the Chongqing Daily that John mentioned, the next step would first be a small-scale prototype to be sent to the stratosphere, so an altitude of about 10 to 50 kilometers, uh, which is above the clouds, and this prototype would ideally be achieved by 2025. So not quite tomorrow, but we can also see it from here. Uh, so the next steps are not necessarily detailed by the Chongqing Daily, but would involve a larger scale prototype. And this bringing us back to our megawatt level station in 2030 and the gigawatt level station in 2020, as mentioned by Long Lehao and by Jean just a few minutes ago. Uh, so the final point on this specific project, I think, um, so one of the more entertaining parlor games that we in the space industry like to play uh, these days is this question of, um, you know, what kind of new businesses or technologies could be enabled by a massive decrease in launch costs and also by a massive increase in launch capacity. And this could be anything from like fleets of Internet of Things CubeSats for big companies. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I read an article speaking with someone from John Deere, the big kind of uh, agricultural machinery maker, a lot of machines that have IoT enabled things. And they were talking about at a low enough price, they would love to have their own IoT constellation in space. Uh, the other possibilities, you know, things like space tourism and, and you know, space-based power stations, as it turns out. So these things that would have been and still are to a large extent completely economically uh, not feasible um, as we move forward, as we see vastly larger rockets and implicitly lower cost of access to space. Um, I suspect we're going to start to see a lot of very interesting business models and technologies start to make economic sense. So. Definitely uh, a fun fun game to play with space industry friends. So, you know, what are some of the best uses of space if the cost of access comes down to hundreds of dollars per kilogram, let's say. Um, and then, yeah, just taking a short sort of step back and looking at sort of uh, Chongqing more, more broadly in the context of the space sector, it's pretty impressive the speed with which they have developed a space industry cluster in Chongqing over these years. So in addition to the space-based power station, which again was announced for Chongqing in 2018, uh, Chongqing is also a major hub for CASC's Leo broadband constellation efforts, including the subsidiary of CASC, uh, China Macronet, the Dongfang Hongwei Yidong Tongxin Youxian Gongse, uh, which was announced um, a couple of years ago in, in Chongqing, and they recently announced an expansion of their efforts uh, in December of last year. And more recently, we did see China SatNet, the um, operating company of China's sort of rep uh, response to Starlink. Uh, we saw their leadership go to Chongqing, meet with the, um, the city leadership, and uh, talking about how they would love to continue to develop the satellite industrial base that is in Chongqing. So definitely a very interesting city to watch. And over the next several years, I mean, you have an urban population of, call it 10 million, and a municipal population of 30 million living in a city that is uh, geographically the same size as Austria. Um, and you have a somewhat greater degree of autonomy due to this being, as Jean mentioned, a provincial level city. So basically a city with the administrative uh, purview of a province. And so we may see Chongqing continue to develop a bustling space cluster for these various reasons. And uh, certainly a space-based power station is uh, is certainly one of those things that's going to be very interesting to see. Um, so yeah, John, anything else from your side? Or shall we go into the response to the flooding in Henan? So I saw that um, Japan, the UK, and the US are also investing in the space-based solar technology. So I'm guessing it's not as funky as it sounds. Um but yeah, so um, moving on. And again, it's like $100 per kilogram. You can do a lot of stuff, I guess. You Absolutely. You can get the launch cost down. Nothing is funky. Yeah. So moving on to the catastrophic flooding in Hunan. So um, as most viewers and listeners are probably aware of over the past week, China's central province of Hunan encountered a record-breaking amount of rain starting from June, uh, July the 17th. And, and this was considered to be a one in a thousand year level of rain triggering absolutely devastating floods. And 
So summer is generally the rainiest time of the year in Henan, but this time the concurrence of several additional climatic uh, factors, such as this massive moisture that was pushed inland from the ocean due to Typhoon Infa, turned what could have been an unremarkable downpour over Henan into really the perfect storm. And the epicenter of this uh, phenomenon was the city of Zhengzhou, which is the capital of Henan province. Which literally experienced the amount of an entire year's worth of rainfall in a single day on July the 20th. And the consequences were absolutely severe. We've all seen images of the roads of Zhengzhou turned into river torrents, passengers trapped in the subway, as well as cars piled up as the water slowly withdrew. And the point of this episode is not really to discuss the consequences of Henan's deadly floods, although Blaine and I definitely pay our respects to those that have been affected by this disaster. But rather, it's to discuss how um, Earth Observation and notably Earth uh, Chinese Earth Observation companies are putting their resources and efforts together to provide remote sensing data on Hunan and turning it into tangible, intelligible analytics for the local government, for insurance companies, and for rescue teams. So let me just let me just um, discuss three examples that I thought were extremely interesting. So first of all, we had Foursquare Technologies, so a company that ordered SAR imagery from China's Gaofen satellite. So SAR is um, synthetic aperture radar. And so Gaofen 3 is a satellite that was launched in 2016 by China and that is part of the space-sponsored program called CHIOS, the Chinese High Definition Earth Observation System. And SAR data, synthetic aperture radar, is incredibly good at picking up still water because still water appears dark on images because radio waves are specularly reflected on still water, meaning that they're reflected away from the uh, radar sensor. And this enables Foursquare technologies to clearly detect the amount of flooding and the areas that are the most affected. And then we had Jaha Info, which is a remote sensing data analytics company based in the neighboring province of Hubei. They're based in Wuhan, the capital. They adopted a similar strategy. They also took SAR data from Galfin 3. And what they did was basically they've been processing the images using their data analytics algorithms to extract useful information for agriculture um, insurance, enabling farmers to quantify the damage and use this information to claim for a uh, claim compensation. And the way this is done basically is that radar signals are reflected differently depending on the wetness of the soil. And the consequence of this is that SAR data can determine farmlands that have been soaked to an extent where crops are no longer able to grow. And so this is really useful to uh, quantify to help farmers determine which parcels of their land um, need compensation. And interestingly, Jahan Info has actually decided to provide this um, service for free for all disaster-stricken areas of Hanan. So I'm sure I'm pretty sure that's uh, quite appreciated by the farmers in the area. And we have we have a third company called Shinda Jitu. So this company is a data analytics company from uh, Beijing, and they're doing a similar thing with Galfin Three. They're also using it to provide crop insurance information analytics. For Hanan, they're also doing it for free. But perhaps more interestingly with this company, uh, we saw they, they posted a table of Earth observation satellites that would be used um, for the disaster. So there's obviously the Gaofen 3 SAR satellite that I mentioned previously, but there were also Chinese leading optical satellites such as the Gaofen 1, 2, and 6. We have 21AT's Beijing 2 optical satellites. We have China Suez Superview satellites. We have Charming Globe's Jilin 1 Earth Observation Constellation. And perhaps more interestingly, we also have US-based company Planet's Earth Observation Constellation data. And I think it's really interesting to see that a Californian-based company Planet images are being used for disaster relief on the other side of the, of the planet, and especially in China, considering that, well, 
relations between the, the two countries aren't um, that great at the moment. Indeed. And I think to a certain extent, that's a comment on the, um, I guess, the degree of maybe admiration or respect that a lot of Chinese space industry people have for Planet for having been quite a pioneer in um, in this part of the industry. So a couple of points. Uh, that's a great word, specularly, so specularly reflected using uh, SAR satellites. The other point I would mention is that I did hear and I saw in the news that at one point in Henan, there were 20 centimeters of rain in one hour, which is a truly astonishing amount of rain. So getting back to the response from different satellite-related infrastructure, another satellite in addition to Gaofan 3 that was very helpful for the monitoring the evolution of the situation in Henan was the recently launched Fengyun 4 meteorological satellite, uh, or I guess multiple satellites. Uh, so they are in geostationary orbit, and they are able to take images at high frequency due to their permanent position above China, as opposed to other satellites in sun-synchronous sun orbit, uh, which have a revisit periodicity, another great word, of once every 12 hours. Uh, and so high frequency images are notably useful for monitoring the evolution of violent climactic phenomena such as typhoons. And for a more in-depth dive into Feng Yun and China's geostationary meteorological satellites, I recommend checking out the Dongfang Hour episode 36 from last month when we went into a deep dive to commemorate the recent launch of the Feng Yun 4B satellite. So in addition to the various Earth observation satellites that have played a role in their response to this flooding We've seen a number of articles published by China's satellite telecommunication companies, so namely China Sat uh, Satcom and APT Satellite, discussing the role that these companies have played in the flood response. And so this has included things like providing critical communication to places that had lost their connection with the outside world. And as we've noted a couple months ago on the Dongfang Hour, China has um, a major emergency communications conference and exhibition every year where we've seen in recent years different satellite service providers and other companies coming to market with new uh, offerings, new products for emergency communications. So this would be things like new KA or KU band terminals to be used on emergency vehicles, this type of thing. And so definitely an interesting thing to see the different SATCOM players in China coming to uh, coming to the rescue, as it were, of, um, of some of these people in, in Henan. So definitely um, a lot of, of, let's say, unity exhibited. I saw a crazy number of posts that were very, very supportive of, of the situation there. So definitely... Uh, you know, a terrifying, but also in a certain sense, inspiring uh, thing to see. Uh, and so moving forward, it will definitely be interesting to see whether the events of this week's flooding will lead to even more emphasis on things like emergency response in the SATCOM sector, um, this type of thing. So I, I think we've we've seen this historically when there have been these really just unbelievable flooding or other kind of natural disasters that there's been quite a strong response. So yeah, definitely. And uh, to Jean's point, uh, our respects to those in, in Hanan and um yeah, hope, hopefully that, that things get better there uh, soon. And uh, Sean, anything else from your side on Henan, or shall we move into the, the launch of the Long March 2C? I'm all good. Great. So on July 19th, we saw a Long March 2C launched uh, with a trio of the Yaogan SIGINT satellites, along with the Tianxi-15 satellite from Guodian Gaoke. And so this is the latest launch of Yaogan, which, um, you know, every time that China does a launch of Yaogan satellites, I assume that it must be the last launch for a little while. Hmm. They tend to be quite secretive. They tend to be announced quite late, if not after the launch has occurred. And this year alone, we have seen a whopping 19 Yaogan satellites sent into orbit. That would be seven launches, of which six were trios of satellites, and one was a single Yaogan satellite. And again, I would say right now, that would sound like the end of the Yaogan satellite launches for this year, but what do I know? So worth noting, um, a parachute system was added to the first stage of this Long March 2C as a way of uh, performing a controlled re-entry. So the launch took place from Xichang in the uh, the landlocked province of Sichuan in southwest China. 
And this generally means that the first stages come down in very rural, but sometimes inhabited parts of China. And the launch teams generally make calculations on the potential landing areas, and they tend to evacuate the populations in those areas. There's still an amount of uncertainty, which is where having a parachute can play a role in uh, reducing the, uh, the size of the landing zone, let's say. And as we found in this launch, and as is becoming quite normal, the TT&C services, at least for the Tianxi satellite, were provided by Satellite Herd, which is a commercial TT&C company. The company has done a very interesting job of building out a global network of TT&C stations, including recent deals with Azerbaijan and Argentina, and they now provide TT&C services to a significant percentage of the commercial satellites launched by China. So definitely a company to keep an eye on. Also of note is that uh, unlike most Chinese commercial space companies, which tend to be in quite capex-intensive industries with a long R&D development timeline, like, you know, it takes a very long time to develop a rocket, uh, companies like Satellite Herd are in a much less capex-intensive industry with a far shorter development timeline. They've built out a network of ground stations, and they are now making money on that. So they are revenue-producing. They might even be profitable. And so very interesting company to watch. Um, getting back to the launch and the other non-Yaogan satellite, the Tianxi-15 satellite. And so with this satellite, the... Um, it, this satellite, uh, this marks the completion of the first stage of the Tianxi constellation being deployed by Guodian Gaoke. And so Tianxi, which is also translated with the, I would say, rather unfortunate name of Apocalypse. I don't think that's a very good name for a constellation, but mm. that, that's neither here nor there, uh, is a 38 satellite IoT constellation project. And the project plans to serve verticals such as smart agriculture, environmental conservation, power grids, coal mining, container transportation, and other industries that need to deploy sensors to monitor the state of various parameters. And so if that person from John Deere is listening, Guodian Gaoke is probably not a bad company to talk to. And these applications are generally situated in fairly remote areas, and they don't require very regular updates. And so Guodian Gaoke, with their 14 operational satellites in orbit, they have a, um, a flyover time of once every 1.5 hours. And so you're looking at updates every 1.5 hours. And this frequency is deemed sufficient for most applications um, of the verticals that they are targeting. So for example, if you have a shipping container that is going across the ocean and you have to check the temperature to make sure that the fresh fruit that is in the container is, you know, is all good, every 1.5 hours should be quite sufficient. And so again, having now completed the first phase of this constellation, um, we're now going to start to see probably more commercialization of, uh, of the constellation. So as mentioned, uh, it is a 38 satellite constellation. And so in the second step, uh, which Guodian Gaoke aims at completing by the end of 2022, uh, the company will be enabling more receivers on the ground to be connected, as well as having a shorter revisit time. It's also interesting to note that at the moment, uh, China does not have a state-owned Leo uh, global Leo narrowband constellation. So in the West, we've had uh, Iridium constellation for a very long time, um, and this provides narrowband communications for similar verticals to Guodian Gaoke. And more recently, Iridium has launched their uh, Iridium Next generation of satellites, which is a bit more, it's a bit higher bandwidth, but still it's relatively narrowband. You would not want to stream Netflix using Iridium Next. And in China, we have the, the Xingyun constellation, which is probably the closest thing that China has to Iridium um, being developed by Kasich. And, but Xingyun is still in a very early stage of development. So we've seen just a couple of satellites launched in that constellation, which eventually plans to be 80 satellites. And so I think this is really kind of a comment on the speed of Chinese commercial space in the sense that, again, in the same amount of time where we've seen a couple of Xingyun satellites launched by Kasich, we have seen Guodian Gaoke deploy 14 satellites and complete the first phase of their constellation. 
I think undoubtedly this comes in part from the just very rapid speed of Chinese commercial space companies. Another factor, however, that I think is worth mentioning is the extent to which Guodian Gaoke has been able to partner with local or city governments to launch these satellites. And so we'll link an article here, which discusses an event that was held recently uh, with the cities of Jiaxing in Zhejiang province, Yan'an in Shanxi province, and Ruijin in Jiangxi province, uh, as well as Guodian Gaoke. And these three cities have apparently all um, collaborated or otherwise uh, partnered with Guodian Gaoke on specific Tianqi satellites. And so in a similar way to Charming Globe, where we've mentioned before CGSTL, um, they have launched Earth observation satellites in partnership with provinces or cities. Um, we see the same with Guodian Gaoke. And I think that that is probably, it helps in the sense that, um, you know, collaboration between the parties is a bit nebulous, but generally speaking, having a city government on your side in China is just good business practice. And so definitely looking forward to seeing more accomplishments from Guodian Gaoke and hopefully seeing their uh, second stage of the constellation deployed by the end of next year as planned. Anything from your side, John, on, uh, on this launch? So I, I want to comment a little bit the Tianqi 15 launch. I think it's really it's it's rather exciting news because it's a sign that we're seeing uh, China's first commercial constellations actually taking taking uh, shape and especially beginning to commercialize. So as you mentioned, Guodian Gaoke is starting to commercialize the Tianqi constellation. We also have CGSDL that's been commercializing their Earth observation, the constellation Jilin-1 for some time now. And the fact is that there have been so many constellation projects since 2014. I, I could probably count at least 20 of them. And quite a few of them haven't been able to materialize for various reasons. For some of them, it's been funding. For others, it's regulatory reasons. And for maybe others, again, it's just the fact that these were not well-structured uh, projects and seemed more like a PPT project, a slideware project than anything. But it's nice to see that there are very solid projects as well that are really beginning to hit the commercialization phase. So Guodian Gaoke is definitely one of them uh, and definitely a company to watch um, for the years to come in China. And so, yeah, that's that's all for me for this week. There's a crazy number of constellations planned in China. Yeah, it is definitely good to see some of these actually coming to fruition. Um, so yeah, that being the case, um, this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 19th to 25th of July, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host Jean Deville. And uh, next week, I will be joining you from Chicago, which is to say not in the 30 degrees Celsius we work in Shenwan, Hong Kong. Uh, so hopefully the uh, the sweating <laughs> situation will be less because this is uh, it's quite unpleasant being in a 30 degree we work, but at the same time, it's uh, it's a nice spot. So uh, anyway, thank you very much for uh, for joining. And again, a reminder that uh, the newsletter bug is fixed. So if you want to get more news updates, we have, I think, eight more stories this week that are covered in the newsletter. So go on over and sign up. And um, yeah, apologies for the error uh, that was going on more recently. We, we don't really know what the issue was, but John sorted it out. So all good. Anything else, John, from your side? I'm all good. So thank you for watching. Cheers and um, see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.